0: this is Feminine Chaos. I'm Kat Rosenfield, and today with me, I have Christy Smythe. I just realized I did not ask how to pronounce your name before we started recording. You got it right.
1: (laughs) All right, great.
0: So Christy, you are a business reporter. You write for a site called businessofbusiness.com, which we will be sure to link to in the show notes. But today, um, I wanted to have you on to talk about a, a mutual interest and passion of ours, which is prison and criminal justice stuff. Um, We have been over the past month uh, in the grips of of two trials that captured nationwide interest. The one that we're going to talk about today, or at least use as a sort of an entry point to, to talk about this stuff is the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Which just concluded with a with a uh, verdict of not guilty by reasons of self-defense. And you and I each have a personal connection to this issue. Yours is more interesting than mine. Um, I am the the child of a prison. Physician, which is something that I was not allowed to talk about for a long time. It was always kind of funny that there was this like risk of retaliatory violence against people who worked in corrections. So I had to be quiet about my dad's job, um, so that you know gave me a certain perspective on what kind of places prisons are. But you. You got into this in a in a very different way. And I think I maybe mean, you should just, um, I just want to say like, for if you're listening and if Christy's name sounds familiar to you, it's because we talked about her on the podcast about a year ago after she did this amazing interview in Elle magazine, which we will talk more about at the end. But yeah, tell me, tell me about your entree into being a a kind of a justice reformer.
1: Yeah, well, unusual, I guess. Um, I I had been a legal reporter for quite some time. Um, I used to work for a a legal uh, news site called Law 360. And then I was a legal reporter at Bloomberg. This is the one and only time this has ever happened in my career. Um, I, uh, (laughs) I, well, after breaking the story of... um, The arrest of Martin Shkreli, the pharma bro. I got to know him. And over the course of years of getting to know him, hard to explain, but basically we hit it off almost immediately. And it was a long time before I realized, you know, I had feelings for him. Like we had real connection that was like deeper than, you know a professional connection. We never crossed that line while I was reporting on him. Like I think we both were like, No, 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 can't <laughs> can't do that. But I, I eventually left Bloomberg because it felt conflicted and it felt wrong. And then I sort of told him, you know, I love you when I was visiting him in prison. And he told me, I love you too. And um, that kind of started like a two year long prison relationship. You know, he told his family, he loved me, he told his lawyers. Um, he, at one point, he called me his fiance, like there was this kind of just long, interesting relationship. Um, <laughs> but anyway, we're, we're, we're still friends to this day, even though, you know, he, we had kind of a falling out when I went public about the relationship and L. Okay, through that whole experience, first of all, being a legal reporter at Bloomberg, you know, we focused on business cases. We focused on white collar crime, on uh, litigation involving big companies over billions of dollars. I was, you know, vaguely aware of the injustices in the criminal justice system, of course, but not specifically aware. That wasn't where like most of my focus was. When I got to know Martin and through our relationship, when I visited him dozens of times um, in various prisons, Um, I, you know, I got to know other prisoners. I got to know their girlfriends and their families. And what I saw and the stories I heard over and over again, just just blew me away. I could not believe how many lives our justice system ruins, particularly, you know, black people, Hispanic people, um, people who are in very vulnerable circumstances of all races, um, we just throw people away and we do it over and over again. And we cost their families so much suffering. And I mean, the amount of money people of very modest means were spending to visit their loved ones. It was just overwhelming to hear these over and over again. So that really kind of galvanized me. And when I started to hear these stories and hear how people were railroaded by the system, um, I started, um, I wrote a couple of pieces actually um, about a couple of Black men who had been really sort of overly... Punished for nonviolent drug crimes, both one had gotten life in prison and one had gotten 25 years, both for stuff that really—I mean, it didn't—they didn't hurt anyone, you know. They, mm-hmm. So I wrote about them, and it actually kind of helped. I think uh, push along some conversations to get getting both of them released, so they're out now, um, living their lives, and I'm really proud of that. But anyway,
0: that's great. Sorry. Go so- ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, I think that, um, you know, one of the, the reasons that you're such a, a interesting and a good person to talk to on this subject is that you are very insistent on seeing the humanity of people who are in the system, you know, who, who people have every incentive, basically, to dehumanize, especially because... You know, the things that we do to people in prison, the way that we treat people in prison, if you have to see them as human beings, it can be really hard to contemplate, like, you know, the, the things that we subject them yeah. to and the things that we subject their families to. And one of the things about the the narrative and the, sort of the progressive narrative surrounding justice reform that makes me very frustrated centers on the idea that people in prison shouldn't have ever been there in the first place, that either they were guilty of nonviolent offenses, you know, and they got got railroaded and they got overpunished or that they were innocent and, you know, and they were convicted for crimes they didn't commit. Um, I think that this is a way that, you know, it makes it easier to talk about this stuff. But the fact is that, you know, like most people who are in prison probably did something pretty bad to get there. So the thing that's important when we talk about it, to me, is continuing to recognize that those people are people too. And that as the system is constructed right now, what we're basically doing is it's it's designed to punish and it's designed to kind of keep punishing you even after you finished serving your debt to society. You know, the deck is just stacked against the people that we send away so that they become, they're not just put in prison, but they're made permanent pariahs in many cases they struggle to find jobs when they get out they struggle to rejoin society their families struggle it's just this incredible marginalization and it's systemic and I always appreciated with the initial narrative surrounding you and and especially given the way that people talked about it online afterwards um that you continued to refuse to dehumanize Martin Shkreli and that you continue to refuse to dehumanize the the people who you advocate for and talk about. And that kind of brings me to the Rittenhouse trial because I was stunned by the way that this was discussed, Um, not just in public, but by public figures whose job it is to talk about this stuff and who kind of drive the conversation. So I wondered if you had thoughts about what kind of shape that conversation took.
1: Yeah, uh I, I do. <laughs> um, I, I mean anytime a life is taken or two lives and and violence happens like this, I mean that's that's something we have to do something about. Um you know, it, it was probably appropriate to to try Kyle Rittenhouse on some some charges. Um He did, you know, he showed up, he had an assault rifle. You know, he he makes a very convincing argument that he had, you know, noble intentions. He was trying to protect businesses. He wasn't trying to hurt anyone. Um, But, you know, it's still kind of, I think many people would step back and say, that's like asking for trouble, right? However, it is stunning to me how quickly this incident, clearly messy incident, you know, where you've got people provoking him, people threatening him, suddenly became him being a white supremacist. And like that was the only narrative people would adopt on <laughs> online. Um, it, it was really frightening, like how how quickly you can get labeled like that. And it, it took so much um, to I guess it took him testifying and it took, you know, this trial for happening in order for people to see him as a person um, and for uh, the circumstances to be, um, you know, to be sort of to be looked at carefully on their merits. and. You know, I have to say, I totally get the anger that comes from is particularly the black community with how much um, we've seen um, in terms of, you know, unarmed black men being um, shot, killed or very, very seriously injured by police. Um, and by they don't get the benefit of the doubt. Right. The, the victim of the, the police shooting, um, Jacob Blake, that's touched off this this whole protest situation in Wisconsin. He, he made a very interesting comment to CNN. He said, for the reasons police said they shot me, they had every reason to shoot him, but they didn't. Honestly, if his skin color was different and not prejudiced or racist, he probably would have been labeled a terrorist. And I find that to be a very interesting statement because that's that's where kind of I feel like the anger is coming from is like, I don't get treated, I don't get given the benefit of the doubt. The system is unfair to me. And that is true, it is 100% true. But you cannot fix something that's broken by breaking something else. And I think that that is a message that people don't want to listen to, even though I I really don't think that you can. I mean, you have to we need to look at people as individuals. We need to look at everyone in the system as an individual. You know, everyone who who gets uh, tried on these kinds of charges should get a chance to plead self-defense if that's what happened. I mean, and we should give them as much credibility as they deserve. It's just. uh, Yeah. I mean, you can't. You cannot fix what happened to Jacob Blake or what happened to all of these uh, victims of um, police violence by calling Kyle Rittenhouse a white supremacist and throwing him in jail for life when that's not what happened.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I I like that you put this, you can't fix what's broken by breaking something else, because that does seem to be the shape that things take a surprising amount of the time, especially when we start talking about, you know, systemic racism in the justice system um, and the need for police reform. It's almost as though some people think that what we want is for the police to shoot and kill and, you know, and and strangle just as many white people as they do black people every single year, like that we want to we want to drag it down and and degrade the process so that everybody gets treated like total shit, when really what would be ideal is if we improve the process so that fewer people were being treated like total shit. And, you know, and it was <laughs> not just equitable, but overall better. Um, yes, you know, exactly. Be, that would be great if the police were not killing anybody each year. It would be great. Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, not just the Rittenhouse story, but also, I mean, I can't imagine that anybody is unfamiliar with this trial, but um, just to recap, you know Kyle Rittenhouse was a a 17-year-old, showed up to um, what was a protest as night fell. It became much more destructive than that. He was carrying an AR-15. He was ostensibly going to defend businesses from looters and rioters. He got into an altercation with a man named Rosenbaum, who had been, been released from an institution earlier that day, who appeared to have showed up because he was drawn to like the trouble of mm-hmm. the protest. Not your poster child, for Black Lives Matter, basically. He got into this altercation. He was chased. Somebody fired a gun into the air and he turned around and shot the people who were chasing him um, or shot Rosenbaum, who was chasing him, and then shot two other men, killed one, wounded one who came after him after he shot Rosenbaum. So he had, I mean, certainly the jury felt that it was a plausible self-defense scenario and that's what his defense attorneys argued for um and that's what the law appears to accommodate for whatever you feel about the verdict legally this is this is what happened um the jacob blake shooting also was interestingly complicated. There are really no perfect victims in any of this, which is something about the narrative that uh, I think is important to kind of resist when people try to oversimplify it or make it facile. But something about the narrative that, that emerged surrounding Kyle Rittenhouse was really designed to make him loathsome in the public eye. And I think that not only was this, you know, you could see it happening on Twitter and so on, but it was happening in the media. It was reported in many places incorrectly that he was like a vigilante who showed up to hunt Black people or to hunt protesters that night. And this is something that I am i am not certain how much the prosecution had to do with kind of seeding that idea into the public realm. But it was interesting to consider in like, you know, as this conversation was developing, as the trial was beginning to ramp up, how much the media can basically become mouthpieces for prosecutors, for the state, simply because they're the ones who are, you know, handing out press releases. They get in many ways to kind of shape the narrative if they want to, which I think is something that you've, you know, sort of seen yeah. firsthand a bunch over the course of your reporting on this stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they have a huge hand in shaping the narrative and they know that like they, they know that, you know, what, what the re- reporters need, <laughs> they need something to write about. They need a story. Um, and, you know, they get to the, the, the law enforcement or the prosecutors, you know, if they send out a press release, they know what it'll get written about if it's something interesting, something eye catching. Um, so yeah, they, they, and if you are a reporter on deadline and you're working under increasingly short time increments when you can file your story you're you're going to you're going to take it you're going to take the press release you're going to write off the press release you're going to you know you're going to ostensibly nominally like <laughs> make it sound like you're being objective but you're really going to be taking all the facts more or less from the prosecution and you're you're going to if you give the defendant any opportunity at all you're going to call them you know a minute before the story runs and you're going to say hey, uh, you know, is there any comment on this? And then before they even decide whether they're commenting, you'll publish the story. That's that's how uh, that usually works. <laughs> so yeah, it's a really easy way to uh, to print, imprint on the publics for the prosecution to imprint what their case is. And that becomes the, the overarching narrative. And everything else is just a counter narrative, which we all know that counter narratives have a harder time getting traction. They sound less you know, it's it's more when you're when you have when you're in the position of saying, no, that's not true. You sound less uh, compelling than someone laying out, you know, a, a first hand you know, set of facts. So they definitely have um, the upper hand in that in that situation. But I do think that it isn't just the prosecutors spinning things. I think that what I noticed, at least with both Martin and with myself, you know, went public with our relationship and there was this huge uproar on Twitter. There's this uh, very discomforting kind of feedback loop between what gets picked up on Twitter and kind of snowballs, which is how Twitter is designed to work, of course, is for people when they say things and it sounds popular, it like, you know, gets traction. And it's, so it's like you get like sort of this mob mentality on Twitter, yelling and rushing to judgment and so on. And then the media, or news media... Kind of makes it worse by they want to of course um, you know they want to get engagement, they want stories that people are going to read and click on, obviously, so it's like you kind of see them picking up the stuff that the mob is saying in Twitter and and calling that fact, and that's where it starts to get really messy and dangerous because then they're kind of putting their stamp of like official approval on it, and then you've got you know politicians and prosecutors jumping onto the narrative themselves and then making it even worse so it's got this like this like multi-step process where prosecution by mob <laughs> is is kind of how this whole feedback loop works and that's how all of a sudden you know I mean my god the stuff that people tried to attach to me after I went public it was just nuts like there's like there actual media stories where people are like calling me mentally ill it was insane and, and you know and the same thing with like you know just jumping to the top shelf and calling a kid a white supremacist it's like Oh, okay. So you know, the mob latched onto this, and then the media made it official, and then the politicians jumped on board, and then it's just like, how do you unpack? You know, how do you undo all that? It's really hard. Yeah,
0: I mean, I was really struck at the time that the the story about you and Martin came out that the narrative that developed in the aftermath of that was. Christy Smythe slept with Martin, like slept with her source, which as, as I understand it, not only didn't happen, but, but couldn't happen because he was in prison. I have never, ever seen him. No. It's, it's one
1: of
0: those things where, where if you think about it for a second, like if you scratch the surface of the narrative, you'll understand that it's factually impossible for what you're hearing to be true. And yet, because it's compelling People just kind of pick it up and roll with it. And when it came to the Rittenhouse case, I think that an interesting example of of how that kind of takes hold was the fact that a lot of people, including people who I know who are um, generally like thoughtful, well-informed, you know, not reactionary people, did not know that the men he killed
1: were white. Right. Interesting how that happens. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know,
0: we become very married to these narratives about racial injustice in the country because they're compelling and because there is some truth to them broadly. But, um, you know, when an individual situation arises that doesn't actually fit, it's like rather than revisiting the narrative, it's like, let's
1: just. Forget about the Yeah, just put it, Mad Libs, just put it in, right? Like, just like, oh, throw in the facts that I think I already know. It's very interesting how we just like jump to those conclusions. So
0: prosecutorial misconduct was a documented issue during the Rittenhouse trial in a way that I think, you know, would have become a big deal had it been a defendant who people were sympathetic to. Um, Because it wasn't, it got kind of overlooked. And these were moments in the trial where, for instance, the prosecutor attempted to kind of question Rittenhouse about why we were only hearing from him now for the first time, which, you know, treads dangerously close to impugning somebody for invoking his Fifth Amendment right to not self-incriminate. He was scolded by the judge for this, and, you know, and rightfully so, because he was treading too close to a line that he wasn't supposed to cross. But the way that this ended up playing in the media was The judge is like in the bag for Rittenhouse. The judge is demanding that they find him not guilty. Have you encountered this, you know, in your reporting? Similar issues or can you speak to this one particularly?
1: Uh, I don't know all the specific instances of of alleged misconduct in the Rittenhouse case. I know generally, you know, that was an issue. um, And I know that they were, you know, pushing it. I, I expect prosecutors to fight as hard as they can and sometimes to push boundaries. The the thing is we just can't it, it's wrong to assume that because they're they're saying it in court that it's fact. And it's wrong to assume that because like they're they're pushing some narrative that that's like that is that that's just the way it is and you know this trial is just for show. I mean that's unfortunately the way I think sometimes the media takes the situation. Sometimes it's the way judges take the situation. I think what with this judge what was unusual was was um what, you know, it attracted a lot of attention. Was when he didn't want to call the the, the people that um, Rittenhouse shot victims, and of course that touched off lots of hot buttons. <laughs> but most of the time, judges seem pro-prosecutor. I mean, that is so. So this was perhaps maybe unusual in that circumstance, and and that's you know why why the media came out against the judge because they're not used to seeing that. I am actually not used to seeing that personally. I mean. I, too many judges on the bench are former prosecutors and we like we don't have any like there are hardly any former like public defenders. I, I don't, can't think of one that's um, a federal judge. <laughs> uh, so it, it is unusual to to hear a judge articulate such a firm stance on fairness. And I think that that was taken as if anything that's, you know, supposedly fair to the defendant is now seen as going too far in favor of the defendant when actually that's the way it really should be for every trial.
0: Yeah I think a lot about what happens you know if if people actually got what they were asking for in cases like this and you started eroding the rights of the defendant even more than than they already are yeah. and you know it's it sucks to be a defendant. I mean I think that this is something worth kind of actually landing on for a second that by the time you get involved in the criminal justice system as a defendant you know by the time you've entered into the system like a lot of bad stuff has already happened to you even if you're found not guilty the trial is a trial it's an ordeal like it's not a good moment in your life and this was an interesting part of the narrative to me that people kept saying you know like Rittenhouse paid no price for taking two lives. And it's like, well, no, you know, he, he certainly paid a price. He spent months in jail. He had to stand trial in a case where he could have ended up serving life in prison. Like he, you know, the idea that this was nothing to him or that it would be nothing to, you know, whichever reporter is kind of opining about it on Twitter just seems sort of facially so ridiculous to me um, that I think it's kind of worth
1: pointing out. I absolutely hate it when journalists who have never a day in their lives, you know, been anywhere anywhere close to that situation and will never be close to that situation start opining about it on Twitter. It's it's absolutely maddening. Like, yes, for any defendant, it's a very traumatizing process. It's yeah, like you said, you know, you have to stand trial. You could be going you could be going to jail for life. I mean in this situation, you know, the written house was already convicted in the media. He had already stood trial in front of millions of people. So yeah, I mean, things happened to him. And I I think what was I was really irritated with was when people were, you know, he was on the stand and he was crying. And a lot of journalists just were like immediately labeled that as like crocodile tears. I'm like, have you ever been in that situation? Do you what would you be like if you were on the stand testifying in your own trial, and you could face life in prison? Tell me, yeah, you'd you'd cry perfectly, you know. <laughs> like, how can you judge someone's emotional reaction in a situation like that? You can't. Yeah.
0: You know, the, the idea that either you would cry perfectly or you or you wouldn't cry. Um, <laughs> when I think about how averse to confrontation, so many of the people having these conversations, you know, making these broad claims about, you know, how oh this is fake, like this is a performance. That most of the people who are who are making those claims are like avoid making phone calls because it makes them (laughs) anxious to talk to another human being. Uh, (laughs) um, Yeah, you know, I, I think it's sort of uncomfortable the sort of like broad proclamations well I would simply like I don't know not get emotional in a stressful situation but there was also something too about the not just that narrative but the way that it circulated it was accompanied by this picture of Rittenhouse with his face all screwed up and his lower lip pooched out like everybody's an ugly crier
1: right like I mean there are not too many yeah yeah
0: and I think that the thing like there was something about it that viscerally disgusted people um mm. and that that kind of guided the the tone of the conversation in a way that
1: nobody really wants to
0: talk too much about.
1: Oh, God. Yeah, that brings back memories. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I understand as a journalist that you you want to get people's attention. Certainly, I try to do that when I write a story. Um, you know, you want and you may want even a somewhat visceral response because we need engagement. We need people to read the story and talk about it. But I have never in my life thought, oh, you know, it would be great. We should make this guy look as bad as possible and make him look awful because everyone, then everyone can pile on and hate him. I do not, <laughs> obviously for my own reasons, <laughs> but also, you know, just generally, I, I cannot fathom doing that. That's just, I just feels very dishonest and wrong to me.
0: So to, you know, kind of continue on the idea of, you know, the media narrative surrounding this, Once Rittenhouse was acquitted, something really interesting happened. He went on Fox News. He gave his first interview after the verdict with Tucker Carlson. Carlson, And he described himself as a supporter of Black Lives Matter, that he broadly agreed with the need to, you know, to achieve racial justice in the country, that he supported their goals if, you know, he didn't support the criminal or chaotic element that sometimes comes after a protest. But then he also took the opportunity to say, so he talked about prosecutorial misconduct during his trial. You know, He pointed out that they constructed this narrative around him. They basically invented a character and they said, he is this person. He says, if they did this to me, imagine what they could have done to a person of color who doesn't maybe have the resources I do or if it's not widely publicized like my case. I'll admit it was a little bit weird to see this person who, the verdict aside, I think made some mistakes, emerge from his trial, taking the opportunity to advocate for two causes that I care a lot about and and really sticking his neck out to do it. I suppose it's not unusual for somebody who's gone through the ordeal of a trial to emerge as an advocate for criminal justice reform, right?
1: Yeah, uh, that was really great. You're right. When he said that, I was like, yep. In fact, it's not just could have, it has happened all the time. Uh, I mean, that's what happened to um, the, the two guys that I kind of helped get out of prison. They were both, they both were invented as characters during their cases that, that did not match their actual personalities at all
0: hmm. Yeah. And I mean, the thing about this, too, is that, you know, when he says if they did this to me, meaning like when the world this is what they did when the world was watching, everybody was paying attention to this case, and they still they still tried shit. Like, imagine what they do when nobody is watching. But the response to him saying this was on both sides, like, anger and disbelief on the one side there were people you know on the right who felt betrayed because he was saying he was like i support black lives matter and he said this on the one network where that's not going to be a popular sentiment and on the other you had people who were like he's just saying that because a publicist told him he should like he's just trying to make himself look
1: good i don't think so he's how old 18 now
0: yeah, I think so. Yeah,
1: I mean, and obviously, has not been in public life most of his. You know, it's not like he was a child star or something, surrounded by publicists from an early age. Uh, that sounded. That was one of the one of the lines that sounded very genuine and very stirring from him. And I think the fact that he said it without uh, regard to this, like the way it would be perceived that that enhances his credibility in my mind.
0: Yeah, yeah. For me it did too. And I was sort of interested to see how many people were really resistant to this is a guy who's just been acquitted. He could say anything he wanted to and, you know, he's on a, a friendly network where, you know, he's not gonna get pushback right. or anything that he says. And he chose to say Black Lives Matter, and he chose to say, you know, let's let's think about all of the people who the system squashes, you know, who don't have a good outcome, um, you know, who don't have the kind of publicity that I got from my case. And I think that it's just... I don't know. It's very interesting that people are like, well, it doesn't matter. Like, he might have said Black Lives Matter, but he was thinking white power, so it doesn't count.
1: I don't understand that attitude. Like, there are real white supremacists, and they we need to do something about that. Um, but why are you inventing fake ones? Like, it's... It doesn't make any sense to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, materially speaking, Kyle Rittenhouse just did more to advance the cause of criminal justice reform amongst people who might not have otherwise been thinking about it at all than just about anybody else who's criticizing him for saying this. So that's interesting.
1: Yeah, that I agree with you completely. That was um, it, it. Was a brave thing for him to say, and um, I'm. It, it made me. I was very happy he said that.
0: So what's your takeaway at this point in the aftermath of the trial and the aftermath of the media attention to it? (laughs) What do you, what do you think about, I don't know. What do you think about the whole thing?
1: Oh my gosh. It has been so, I mean, this whole, this whole reform movement, I don't know what it's going to take, right? Like we, we all know what needs to happen. We know that at least, you know, reasonable, sensible minds know that, you know, we need to not break something else. We need to fix what's broken. And it just keeps staying broken. And And it's so infuriating. I do hope that to the extent that this embarrassed people in the media, that this embarrassed the prosecutors, I mean, I hope that that has an impact. Honestly, I feel like people with like giant egos in these institutions, like that's the only way you like get some kind of change is by catching them in a mistake or catching them in a lie. Um, so, I I certainly hope so. I hope I hope next time, you know, whoever is on trial, whoever, you know, whatever individual that is, they don't they don't use those tactics, you know, be fair, fight fair, like, obviously, you need to advance, you know, the cause of public safety and so on. But like, we shouldn't be um, trying, we should be treating each defendant as an individual, we shouldn't be trying them in the media, we shouldn't be trying them as symbols, like whatever character we invent for them. (laughs) I can hope that that's what happens. I don't know if that will be what happens, but I do feel that, that there is a very strong drumbeat for criminal justice reform that has emerged um, on social media. And I'm, I'm very happy to, to see that. I, I just don't know if it's going to stick. I mean, what do you have to
0: sacrifice to, to move forward and to try to you know avoid having this turn? I mean, in some ways, this trial was like... It was like a sequel to the Covington thing with the the kids in that confrontation with the Native American oh man right. at the what was the Lincoln Memorial or whatever. You had this this one kid, you had like a picture of him, and he just kind of became an avatar for everything that was wrong with the world. And then it turned out that that was a bullshit story, and that what actually happened was not only more complicated, but basically the opposite of of what everyone thought. Not dissimilarly, like you know, we had with this trial, like this picture of Kyle Rittenhouse circulating everyone was like that's disgusting look at look at this awful kid who deserves to just like be locked up and throw away the key so to avoid having that happen i guess we would have to among other things sacrifice the satisfaction of like having this person who's just sort of an object of loathing, you know, who we can kind of pile it all onto because they're an avatar for everything that's terrible in the world. And on whom we can indulge this punitive impulse that unfortunately is also still very much kind of the backbone of the system as it works right now.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. There is uh, there is far too much um, re- of reducing people to heroes and villains you know, right away. Like, look what happened with Andrew Cuomo. And he was (laughs) reduced to hero status during COVID and then quickly fell from grace. I mean, that was pretty. (laughs) People people quietly sneaking their Cuomo sexual
0: t-shirts into the trash. They're like, I never owned this.
1: (laughs) dangerous right like when you're like oh yeah this guy he's he's gonna save us from everything no no <laughs> or, or right or the opposite like where you take somebody and you make them into a symbol of everything terrible like it kind of reminds me of like tom wolf's bonfire of the vanities um which kind of had the similar theme 30 how many years ago so many years ago <laughs> it's like that kind of imprint of a story or before twitter before um all that like where like somebody becomes a symbol of everything terrible. And they're really only kind of terrible in the book. <laughs> so, it's not useful. This doesn't, this doesn't get us closer to reform when you are, especially when you're like mislabeling somebody as a villain of everything terrible, like it's gonna, it's gonna, your whole argument's going to fall apart sooner or later. It's not going to work. So I don't know what, who, who thinks this is useful, other than as you know, a momentary feeling of you know retribution and satisfaction. Otherwise, no. I mean, doesn't move us forward.
0: So I think that in the UK they actually do have um, more restraints on how the press is allowed to publish and talk about um, trials, yes. yeah, trials and defendants. There and is that something? I mean, it seems it sounds profoundly un-American to like you know abridge the freedom of the press in any way. Is um, that something that would never catch on here?
1: No, I see that. No, absolutely not. Maybe in like very isolated circumstances, like at the state level somewhere, but like no, it it's the press freedom in this country is at least in the courts and the eyes of the courts is like an absolute.
0: so I mean well, like we're entering the holiday season. What's your top three wish list for achievable <laughs> reforms?, let's just go big.
1: <laughs> go big and achievable reforms. oh man, that's really awesome. Um, okay, so I think it would be amazing if we evaluated every single person for, who's in prison for life if there was if we could start with nonviolent crimes and you know figure out how to label them as nonviolent, but you, eventually it'd be great to look at every single one and and evaluate them for potential clemency um or you know at least reducing the sentence or something just just across the board that would be amazing because there are a lot mm-hmm. of people languishing in prison for extremely long periods of time and it really doesn't make sense Um, So that's one. Um, I would love to see. uh, So there's I would love to see more incentives um, in our current correction system. I do think that there are some good intentions that go into, um, you know, the the prison system as we know it. But it doesn't happen in practice. Right. Like we know that, like, although on paper, this sounds like everything's humane and great, like in, in practice, you know, like. They don't get the medical care they need. You know they, they get crappy food. So it would be it would be really great to um, to see some actual meaningful prison reform where there is um, encourage more incentives, more positive incentives to get people on the road to getting out of prison and um, not you know committing crimes again. So like in the federal system, we have this. Um, drug and alcohol rehabilitation program called RDAP, which, um, when it's, when it's administered properly, when there's actually like a good person in charge, I've heard this can be a very, very beneficial program. It also has, it's a lot of intensive therapy. It's a lot of like, you know, re re sort of re changing your thinking and being more respectful to people you're around. And it also offers the incentive of like a year off your sentence. So there's carrots and sticks and so forth, and we need more carrots. I think in the system to help people um, adjust and 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 kind of we don't we we want we don't want to have a permanent underclass. We want less crime, so mm. <laughs> let's help get people out of that lifestyle. Um, gosh, and do I have a third? I would love to see qualified immunity just gone. <laughs> like cops <laughs> <obviously laughs> need to be held accountable, just like everybody else. <laughs> but that's yeah, that's my wish list. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think that's a great wish list, and I mean you know in light of it. like tis the season. I I think that one of the things when you talk about like carrots and sticks, and there are so many things that are just like in prison that are needlessly cruel, you know, where it's just like, it's just kind of adding insult to injury. For instance, if you send a holiday card to somebody who's incarcerated, there's a good chance that they won't be allowed to receive the card itself, like take a picture of it and show it to them. And what's the purpose of that? Like, what does it, what does it do except take away this tactile experience of like receiving physical note from somebody who cared enough to write to you? And like, you can't even, you can't even have that. It just, I mean, I can't even imagine like having to look at a picture of a card that somebody sent me and, and still trying to feel human afterward.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that was in response to um, rising drugs in prison, but uh, that doesn't address how the drugs actually get in, which in a lot of times is usually guards, <laughs> or mm-hmm. someone bribed. But anyway, yeah, the it's like in an effort to, it's so hard to like, actually subjugate humans that way, because human beings we're, were all complex, and we have wants and needs and so on. And in order to do that, it's like, you know, they take away strip away as many basic rights as possible, like they basically want these human beings to have, you know, few less agency than my dog, you know. <laughs> my dog has some say over like when he goes to the bathroom and and where he gets to go. Um people in prison don't. It's Hard to wrap your brain around like how little freedom they get and it's just infuriating to think about it because like it, it, it these are people,
0: you know. Right. And, he, and and there's this expectation that having lived like this for, you know, a period of years that you're going to be re-released into society and you're just going to like be okay just does not seem intuitive
1: not at all not at all it's just punitive it's just people saying oh you know you committed a crime so we're going to punish you i really think it's people who need to feel better than somebody else i think that's where that comes from mostly it's like Mm -hmm. you know oh, at least i'm not as bad as a criminal
0: yeah. So, on the topic of people who need to feel better than somebody else, at this point, I want to just segue into the part of the uh, the podcast that I'm going to hold back for subscribers um, because it's interesting. That is to kind of mark the anniversary. It's been just about a year since you did this interview um, with. L magazine about your relationship with Martin Shkreli and it set the internet on fire and it was all anybody would talk about. And I, you know, I would just love to know like how you're feeling about that a year later. How's it, how's it been? <laughs>
1: it's been honestly, and the whole thing, I mean, as, as, as wild as it was, um, you know, it's certainly not fun being torched online from every angle. But I was like mentally prepared for it. I, I you don't you don't get involved with Martin Shkreli without like thinking, all right, eventually someone's gonna like drag me for this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but for our public listeners, the interview ends here. If you'd like to hear the extended cut of this chat between me and Christy, go to patreon.com slash feminine chaos, where you can sign up at the $5 a month level to get access to all kinds of exclusive content, including extended cuts of interviews like this one, but also our pullback catalog of previous episodes and other fun stuff. Um, Christy, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. It was such a blast. It was great. And this has been Feminine
1: Chaos.